One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delight. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every Leader of the Opposition who crucially never made it to number 10. From Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage. Leader of the pack. Well, first up on this episode, Harriet Harman. Between May and September of both 2010 and 2015, uh, Harriet Harman became leader of the Labour Party and, and was therefore leader of the opposition. And put that in the context of, because she her career, you know, she's been at the front line of politics. I think she's actually, Mark, is it 40, 40 years mm. in the Commons uh, right about now? Put that into context of her, because often when we've, we've done these, because each of our leaders of the opposition are included as long as they didn't actually become prime minister. How significant is the, are those two short periods as leader of the opposition compared to everything else she did in politics? Well, I think like most of the leaders we've, we've talked about who didn't become prime minister, um, a lot of them, um, because of that, there are other things in their career that sort of um, take a more of a highlight. So she did have two spells in cabinet. But I think what's interesting about her is she is sort of, you know, a, a great comeback politician because she had been in the shadow cabinet uh, under first John Smith from 1992 and then under Tony Blair, where she held a number of roles. She was Shadow um, Health Secretary and Shadow Social Security Secretary under Blair. But she then entered the Cabinet uh, in 1997. And uh, you might remember that the uh, the rhetoric around Social Security at that time was that uh, Labour was going to think the unthinkable. But the person who was told to do that was not Harriet Harman. It was Frank Field, her junior minister. Um, and throughout the year that she was in office, uh, first of all in Cabinet, there was constant reports of rows and disagreements between Frank Field and Harriet Harman uh, over policy. And it ended up with this huge bust up between the two of them. Um, and they both ended up losing their position uh, in government. So she she sort of left uh, in, in a fairly disappointing way a year afterwards. She recently actually, when uh, she was giving her tribute to the Queen in the House of Commons, referred to the fact that when she was sort of unceremoniously booted out of the cabinet, then one of the only people who rang to sort of commiserate <laughs> was Buckingham Palace, and she was invited to see the Queen um, to say goodbye. So. 
um, you know, you might have thought that, you know, that was a shortening, glorious career in cabinet. Um, but then surprisingly, first of all, she came back as Solicitor General under uh, Tony Blair a few years later. But then she contested the deputy leadership of the Labour Party in, 19, uh, in 2007, um, when Tony Blair stood down and there was a, a coronation of, uh, of Gordon Brown without a contest. The deputy leadership of the Labour Party, because John Prescott stood down, um, that did uh, have a contest. Um, and she was quite a surprising winner there. She, in the final round uh, of that of that contest, she beat Alan Johnson, who was the sort of the, the choice of the of the parliamentary party. If you look at the numbers, so she was quite a surprising winner of that, and that sort of propelled her back into cabinet. She became leader of the House of Commons, uh, and she became Lord Privy Seal and uh, Minister for Women, but uh, not Deputy Prime Minister. But not Deputy Prime Minister, and this is a point of contention, which I think she's uh, she's she's raised that she thought that it was. Um, it was rather unjust that as deputy leader of the party, she wasn't made deputy prime minister. But, but she did stand in for Gordon Brown a number of times. So um, she was the first uh, female Labour minister to take prime minister's questions uh, in the House of Commons. And of course, then when she was leader of the opposition for her two stints, she also asked the questions um, as well. So she's seen both sides of PMQs. That was Harriet Harman. And of course, she was succeeded by Ed Miliband. I mean, quite a lot to discuss about his um, his time in office, and um, with these more recent ones, I think we're we're much more um, familiar with their but, but their fact, highs and lows. If anyone's not fully familiar with uh, Ed Miliband's output, let's just take a listen to this. <laughs> the point is, people think you're just not tough enough. Well, uh, let, let me tell you, right? Let, let me tell you, okay? <laughs> Come on. Let, let me tell you. Am I tough enough? H tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Now, our six pledges form the basis of our plan for working people. These six pledges are now carved in stone. They're carved in stone because they won't be abandoned after the general election. Ed Miliband, what are you having for breakfast? I mean, me of all people, I'm not sure I should be speculating. It's a radio, about... it's a radio. I'm not, I'm not filming or taking well, photos of you eating. I, I mean, should I say bacon sandwich in order to just sort of, for the, for the listeners... That's clearly not a bacon sandwich. That, that is some porridge. Wow. Which, yeah. what, what's in it? Some kind of berries. Uh, that was my exclusive interview with Ed Miliband there for our short-lived series, What Are Politicians Eating for Breakfast? So where, where to begin? Well, let, let's, let's do the sort of the, the, the potted biography Let's begin at the beginning, all. exactly. Let's begin at the beginning. Um, I mean, he was born in, in North London. Um, his father was um, Ralph Miliband, who is famous left-wing um, academic. He taught at the, the London um, School of Economics. Um, and um, he's very proud of his his um, Jewish heritage. Um, his mother and father both fled the uh, the Holocaust uh, and were immigrants to to the UK. And um, he and his brother David, who I'm sure we'll talk about more in a, in a moment, um, sort of grew up in a very political household. And the family uh, were very friendly with, for example, Tony Benn, uh, who was a frequent visitor. Um, and he recalls. Um, many sort of dinner parties where he sort of sat there listening to um, Tony Benn and his father um, discussing politics, which had a, an influence. Um, and uh, the two of them were encouraged to sort of uh, get involved in politics. Um, he attended a local comprehensive school um, before going off to um, Oxford uh, to study PPE. Um, after that, or actually I think before he went to university, he, he interned for Tony Benn um, and worked for him. Um, so politics sort of runs through his um, his his life. Um, and uh, one of his earlier um, jobs um, after he, he left university, uh, he eventually found himself um, uh, as a researcher um, working 
um, on Channel 4 show A Week in Politics um, as the, the researcher to Andrew Rawnsley. Um, so he gave him a bit of a leg up. I don't know whether he's uh, um, <laughs> talked about that since. Um, he also worked as a, a researcher to Harriet Harman as well, which is quite interesting because, of course, as we talked about last week, he um, he took over from her in her role as leader of the opposition after she um, stood in for a few months uh, after Gordon Brown stood down. Um, so he's, he had a, a very political um, adolescence and then his early jobs were in politics uh, and he found himself eventually working for Gordon Brown and this is where he really uh, sort of cut his teeth. You had the team around Gordon Brown in opposition from sort of 1995 onwards. Uh, you had Ed Miliband, Ed Balls, um, Charlie Whelan and the whole sort of team who um, surrounded Gordon Brown before they went into government. Um, then, of course, um, in the, the Labour government, uh, he was advised to Gordon Brown, was elected to Parliament in 2005. Um, and along with uh, his brother, David, also served in cabinet, notably um, as uh, uh, energy and climate change um, secretary, something uh, he was very proud of. Um, then elected uh, leader of the opposition uh, unexpectedly in 2010. Uh, because of the the votes of the unions, um, if it had been up to the the members um, purely um, in the constituencies and to the uh, the MPs in Parliament, um, David Miliband would have won. It was that very narrow result. Um, people might remember um, that that he won. Um, on the, the back of the, the votes of, of the unions um, and took office at the age of 40. Um, so the youngest leader of the Labour Party um, there had been up to that point. And that relationship, because obviously David Miliband was working for Tony Blair while Ed Miliband was working for Gordon Brown and that sort of set up what was all, you know, you've got the TBGBs, Gordon versus Tony, uh, David versus Ed. And he never really shook that off, did he? And it was always struck me, I was working at Mail Online at the time, whenever I wrote about Ed Miliband, the comments would be full of people, years after, you know, three, four, five years after he, he won the leadership, people saying he stabbed his brother in the back. And that kept mm. coming up as a thing that people, you know, their first impression was they didn't like him, even though he just ran against his brother and won. Uh, but they felt this wasn't on. He was the junior brother and he should have stepped aside and he stabbed his brother in the back. And he never really, his reputation never really recovered from that for a lot of people. No, I think it, it under, underlined for a lot of people the kind of ruthlessness of politics. You know, the, the idea that somebody would um, challenge their brother and, and run against them in, in, in that way. Um, also, I think there's something in the fact that it was one of the few things people knew about him. Mm. Um, clearly, it was part of the of the, dr the drama of that leadership election. It was part of the sort of psychodrama there. Um, and so he wasn't someone who was hugely well-known when he became leader of the Labour Party. And that was one of the, the few things people knew. So I think that sort of... Um, that, that stuck. And there has been criticism um, of him that he, in those first few months as leader, he really needed to hit the ground running and establish himself as his own person. But a lot of that um, time was was dominated by uh, speculation over the role that David Miliband would play. Um, and he didn't really sort of have a chance to, to sort of set his own narrative. He also perhaps wasn't as prepared as his brother would have been to become leader. Um, you know, the we perhaps forget sometimes when, when events happen, we always think that they were inevitable. Um, you have to put yourself back there and you'll remember this, you know, it, it really did feel as though it was nailed on for David Miliband yeah. and, um, and, you know, that's the way it was heading. And at that party conference um, in, in 2010, it's, it's one of the, uh, the few Labour Party conferences I've, I've attended. It's quite a dramatic one. Um, there was a real sense of sort of grief on the part of the kind of the, you know, the mainstream sort of uh, new Labour kind of um, centrist part of the Labour Party um, who had been expecting this sort of coronation of, of David Miliband. Um, and they were sort of walking around almost in a state of shock. So, yeah. you know, he didn't start his leadership with this sort of great um, kind of unified party ready to sort of um, start the, the tough job of opposition. 
And obviously, he took the party into the election in 2015, and the Conservatives defied the polls. They def certainly defied Twitter, uh, and and won a small majority. He then stepped down, but unlike everyone else in politics these days, he hung about. Uh, he sort of didn't make a lot of uh, fuss during the uh, Jeremy Corbyn years. He's now back on the front bench. I suppose, in a way, he's more like some of the early leaders of the opposition that we've spoken about. You know, he'd been in cabinet before, then he led the party. Uh, now he's in shadow cabinet. If Keir Starmer wins the next election, we assume he'd be back in government again. That actually being an unsuccessful leader of the opposition is just a small blip in a in a in a broader political career, rather than the thing that necessarily defines him. Yes, and I think part of the reason for that is that we're seeing politicians um, taking office um, much younger. As we've said, he was one of the young, well, the youngest leader of the Labour Party up to that point at the age of 40. And we've seen that with other politicians who have led the party uh, or led their party um, early in their career. Um, of course, William Hague uh, was yeah. uh, became leader of the opposition um, at the age of 36. Uh, as he said, he's, he got that out of his system and then was able to sort of, uh, he, he took five years off and then went back into the shadow cabinet and became, you know, quite a well-respected and um, and uh, successful foreign secretary. Um, so we have seen that. Um, Ian Duncan Smith uh, went into the cabinet in 2010, um, having had a, you know, very inglorious period as leader of the opposition. So we are seeing this happen um, a lot more. And um, perhaps, you know, we haven't quite yet got to the uh, the replication of, of what's happens in what's happened in Australia um, on a number of occasions when people have have gone off and uh, and then come back as leader uh, several years later. But um, I think we can all think of one person who's perhaps uh, thinking <laughs> that they might do that in future. But we haven't seen that happen. Um, but I think you know if, if we look at his, his leadership, as, as you say, in in 2015, that the victory of, of David Cameron in that election, winning a, a Conservative majority, was unexpected. Um, it wasn't really expected at that time that Labour were going to win a majority. But the electoral arithmetic seemed to suggest they would at least have a, a shot at forming a coalition government. And yeah. that seemed to be the received wisdom. Um, and so it was a surprise that the Conservatives won um, that majority. So I think, you know, although we can say he, he failed as leader of the opposition, didn't become prime minister, um, he got pretty close. And I think that, you know, that had things um, turned out slightly differently, um, he only would have needed, you know, a, a few things to, to go his way. Um, to have become um, prime minister in that election, probably of a minority government uh, with some form of coalition, and actually, and so probably the, the total collapse of the Lib Dems. That, that yes, he, he had less control over it, but it was a more deciding factor. Indeed, uh, and it's it's that which means that some of these things we heard in the yeah. in the clip there about his personal style and some of the things like the Edstone yeah. and all those things they really matter because people didn't quite see him yeah. as a prime minister, and that may have accounted for those votes that he didn't get. Always love a trip down the Ed Miliband memory lane. Coming up next, then it's oh. Jeremy Corbyn. It feels a bit odd doing a sort of retrospective historical look at uh, sort of an unknown leader of the opposition when it's someone as recent as, as Jeremy Corbyn. But in, in some ways, I think, you know, if we look back at that time, certainly for anyone who's interested in, in political history and, and, and politics generally, it, it does feel like a bit of an odd episode um, <laughs> that, that Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the opposition and leader of the Labour Party for five years. Um, and I think that really that that comes from, I mean, I, when I was, um, uh, when I heard that he'd become leader of the Labour Party when they announced it, I was at a sort of political science conference. Um, and even though it had been by that time fairly well expected, um, the reaction of some of the kind of political academic uh, professionals to the fact that, you know, this this very unexpected result, which no one sort of six months before would have predicted, um, was quite extraordinary. Um, 
Uh, there was a wonderful quote, which unfortunately I, I, I can't give you because it uh, contains too much swearing from <laughs> um, uh, which just summed it up, up perfectly. But I think that's one of the key things about uh, any look at Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition is that it was such an unexpected and an odd thing to have happened. Um, you know, if you had, and I'm sure, you know, from your time as a political journalist, if you've gone back into sort of the you know, the um, 1990s or into the sort of noughties um, and said, you know, is Jeremy Corbyn someone who's going to be leading a major political party in the future, the Labour Party? You know, it would have been a nuts idea. It was absolutely crazy. So um, it was a very unusual thing to have happened. But um, he, he did it not in the way that most uh, politicians uh, tend to reach high office, which is to sort of follow the uh, the way in which the wind is blowing and sort of um, get people on side and sort of navigate the uh, the political jungle um, to, to get up, up the greasy pole. Um, he didn't change his views one iota. Um, and so it's this very odd thing that, you know, by being the sort of the next in line for the, the nomination of the, the left in the Labour Party to stand to stand for and lose the leadership, uh, which had become a habit uh, that they'd, they, they got into, um, those on, on the left of the party, Diane Abbott, um, himself, John McDonnell, uh, they take it in turns to stand as just the left-wing candidate in a leadership election. Um, never any intention of winning, um, and uh, and then of course, you know, very surprisingly, did so. So I think that's the first thing to note about him becoming leader of the opposition. He was an extremely unusual character and someone who himself never intended to become leader. And actually, he got on the ballot paper because people who didn't want him to be leader nominated him. And I think if we look back over the twelve months of us going through, whether he's forty odd. Uh, leaders of the opposition and make it a number 10. I can't remember anything quite so... You know, if the number of people who actually wanted him to be leader had uh, signed his nomination paper, he'd have never got on the ballot. He'd have never become leader. But this sort of strange idea of having an internal debate and wanting to broaden the slate or whatever mm. it might be, it, as a sort of act of sort of, I don't know, self-harm, I suppose, from from mainstream Labour MPs. It was pretty extraordinary. It, it really was. And, of course, it, it led to this this problem, which is an institutional problem, where you have a leader of the party who has support from outside the outside of parliament, from the membership of the political party who actually um, elect the leader, but very limited support within parliament from the MPs who, if that party becomes uh, a government, are going to be the, the MPs that support that, that government in power. And that's, you know, not just a, a political problem. It was a, a big political problem for Jeremy Corbyn and for the Labour Party. It's also a massive constitutional problem. Um, and we had um, the, the, the sight of a number of Labour MPs saying ahead of, I think, the 2017 and 2019 elections um, that they would stand as Labour MPs, but on the basis that they wouldn't support Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister. You know, they had to, for their own conscience and for their own electorate, say, you know, I, I will stand to be your MP as a Labour MP, but I'm telling you, I'm not going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. Um, and you can't sustain that. And so I think it does highlight, um, and we had this when he lost a vote of no confidence amongst his MPs in Parliament in 2016. You know, the shadow cabinet pretty much resigned en masse. In any other um, party system, that would have been the end of the leader. Um, and he came back from that and he won another uh, mandate from the party membership in the country. And so you have this extraordinary position, which was never resolved throughout that time, of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the MPs in Parliament, um, standing against the wishes of the, the party members um, who'd, you know, paid three pounds or, or 20 quid um, to be party members. Um, and so I think it's something that hasn't been resolved. And of course, it's not limited to the Labour Party. Yeah, We've yeah. seen that problem happen with the Conservative Party as well recently.
And just put into context his sort of impact, because he did much better in the 2017 election than anyone expected, you know, depriving Theresa May of her majority, although she might have played a part in that as well. But then in 2019, led the party to its worst result for, what, 70, 80, 90 years. So what, when, when, the, when historians, rather than sort of newspaper journalists, come to look back on the Corbyn period, what is his legacy? Is it, because, you know, he did very well in 2017 and very, very badly in 2019. Well, I think it'll be both of those things. I yeah. think the fact that he did much better than expected in um, 2017 obviously meant that he was still in position to, to take the party um, into that disastrous election in 2019. Um, and the other thing, and you could say this about Ed Miliband as well and some other leaders, Sometimes it's the things that they don't do or the things that they're not in a position to do. That was Jeremy Corbyn. So we finally made it through every modern leader of the opposition who didn't make it to number 10. What can the current leader, Keir Starmer, learn from those that tried and failed before him? So far, we've had 46 episodes. We've had 44 leaders, 16 of them Labour, nine Conservatives, um, eight Liberals, six Whigs, Three protectionists, one independent Labour, and one Irish unionist. So I think we've we've got most we've got of the a good other. spread there. We've got, we've got a good, good spread. spread of of other people. Um, we've travelled from 1783 uh, with Charles James Fox um, through to the present day. Um, that, that's covering 239 years, um, and that takes us from the reign of George the Third to the reign of Charles the Third um, as well. So uh, we've had duels with pistols, um, numerous <laughs> aristocrats. Countless Oxbridge graduates, um, who some of whom got the, uh, the bell when we uh, announced their uh, um, oh, their education. There it is. Yep. There always, always um, Oxbridge. Always on cue. Um, and of course, one very well planned spreadsheet, uh, which brings us uh, to our final leader on the list now, Keir Starmer. Though, of course, I should say that Keir Starmer currently qualifies for the list um, because he hasn't become prime minister. But I th I'm sure he'll be hoping that he will be disqualified. Uh, uh, a future. good point, because we've only done the leaders of the opposition who then didn't become prime minister because we did prime ministers last year with Andrew Jimson. Well, let's, Indeed. Let's focus a bit on, uh, on Keir Starmer then. Uh, let's go back to when he became uh, Labour leader. Obviously, it was in the middle of the pandemic. And when he finally got round to making his first big speech as Labour leader at the party conference, uh, it was given during lockdown, uh, without a, an audience, standing slightly weirdly in front of a brick wall. I want this be the best country to grow up in and the best country to grow old in. A country in which we put family first. A country that embodies the values I hold dear. Decency, fairness, opportunity, compassion and security. So he didn't, get, he didn't have the most orthodox of starts, Nigel. No, he really didn't. And um, I think it's um, it's one of the biggest challenges that he faced in the, the first, uh, well, certainly the first two years of his leadership, um, that he he had this, um, you know, first speech, which is the big opportunity that uh, a new leader has to introduce themselves to, to the public. And as you say, he had to do that um, sort of, you know, from his front room. And it, it it's quite difficult. There was um, a number of leaders we've looked at through the series who have never really recovered from the fact that they, they didn't make uh, enough of that first impact. Uh, you think of um, Ian Duncan Smith, whose um, whose leadership was overshadowed at the beginning by 
uh, 9-11, which happened sort of two days before. Um, and also Ed Miliband, who was criticised for not having um, made enough of an impression when he became leader uh, to sort of change the narrative around the financial crisis and that sort of thing. So these early impressions really count. And I think that Keir Starmer in some ways um, suffered from that. But he did have the opportunity really to be able to demonstrate that he was a responsible leader of the opposition. He, he said in that speech that he would not uh, be taking opportunistic um, sort of shots at the government during this national crisis and so on. So he was able to do something which some leaders find quite difficult, which is to demonstrate to the electorates that he is someone who they can see as a, a credible and, and sensible um, potential prime minister. So I suppose he had that. Um, going for him, and of course the the bit about not taking shots at the government and uh, and being a, a bit less um, sort of gung ho in his opposition. Uh, well, of course that faded later on as as we came out of the out of COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that's come up a lot when we've done the uh, focus groups is that people seem to divide into two groups. One uh, of saying uh, all he does is sit there and opposes everything, sort of slightly mm. pointing out the, the 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 whole point of being the leader of the opposition. And the other is saying that because he, he he basically supported the government much of what they did join COVID, that was sort of what was the point of him. And obviously, it's it's been a bit of a challenge to sort of define himself since then. What I want to do, Nigel, was for you to sort of was pick through some of the previous leaders of the opposition we've talked about and, and any lessons from them that Keir Starmer might learn. And you've picked out um, Hugh Gateskill. Let's just take a listen. This is Hugh Gateskill in 1960. Speaking at the Labour Party conference, as he faced down challenges from the left of his party. Let me repeat what Manny Shinwell said: the place to uh, decide, the place to decide the leadership of this party is not here, but in the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, and I would not wish for one day to remain a leader who had lost the confidence of his colleagues in Parliament. Yes, Nigel, so there's literally nothing new in politics, is there? Blimey. Uh, <laughs> this all goes back to who should be the leader of the party. Should it be decided by members and delegates and unionists or should it be uh, uh, should it be decided by um, by the Labour Party uh, MPs in Parliament? Yes, indeed. And and also, of course, Hugh Gateskill, um, you know, one of the original modernisers. Mm. Uh, we all think of uh, Tony Blair being the arch moderniser, but the first person to have a go at getting rid of Clause 4 of the Labour Party constitution uh, was Hugh Gateskill. And, um, you know, he also had big fights with his party about their position on nuclear uh, disarmament and things like that. So he was somebody who faced a lot of the issues that um, Labour leaders have faced uh, at other times in facing down sort of the hard left. And of course, the reason that Hugh Gateskill didn't make it to number 10 is because he died in office. Um, and so I think, you know, given that he is on our list and he's someone who qualifies by not making it to number 10, he was somebody who I think we can say probably was on course to become prime minister. Um, although, of course, the 1964 election was quite narrow. Harold Wilson narrowly won that one. Um, after he took over. Um, but I think there's a lot to learn. Hugh Gateskill was leader for quite a long time, um, and he had these uh, fights with the the party internally. Um, and as I say, I think when we're looking at sort of modernisation of the party and that sort of um, returning it to the mainstream and trying to hold the centre whilst facing criticism from the left, I think a lot of leaders can take uh, lessons from Hugh Gateskill.
Right, let's move on to, to someone else. There's always been the big question. Is, is Keir Starmer, Neil Kinnock, cleaning up uh, the mess left by the, the left winger who led them to a terrible defeat? Or Tony Blair marching them on uh, to a big landslide victory? It's possible he seems to be, uh, at the moment anyway, the polls suggest he might be doing both. Let's take a look at Neil uh, Kinnock then, because, of course, he had his own challenges which either deal with the, the, the infiltration of the hard left and militants. This is uh, Neil Kinnock in his famous Labour Council's uh, speech where we slapped down militant in Liverpool. Outdated misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs, and you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. It's extraordinary, that speech. But there are obviously also the risks of overconfidence when you think you're miles ahead in the polls. Uh, this was, of course, Neil Kinnock shouting, we're all right, at a rally in Sheffield in uh, 19... 92, uh, the election of 1992. Uh, of course, it turned out they weren't all right. We're all right. We're all right. We're all right. I could listen to that all day. Um, lesson, <laughs> lessons of Neil Kinnock for Keir Starmer, Nigel. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, the first one is one of those. I mean, you can't hear it enough. That's one of the best political party conference speeches ever um and uh, we talked about that at the time but um but yes i think that the second one although of course um as neil now says it didn't play a huge role itself in um in the result of the election it does show the the dangers of hubris um that election was one that was labors to lose um you had uh, neil kinnock being um, sort of put in a smart suit and uh, all of the Labour front bench being talked up as, um, as as an alternative government, they were sort of quite ready to take power um, and probably were on course to do that had Margaret Thatcher remained Prime Minister. But the Conservative Party got rid of her, put in John Major, um, and he had that boost in popularity which allowed him to, to unexpectedly win that election. So even if you are significantly ahead um, of the government uh, two years out from the election, I think the biggest lesson is two years out from an election you can be hugely ahead, but things can change uh, and the government can unexpectedly win an election. Uh, let's move on and talk about the uh, reassuringly dull leader up against a government in crisis. Uh, this is talked about uh, John Smith, of course, who then became uh, replaced uh, Neil Kinnock after the 92 election. Uh, this is him speaking at PMQs about John Major's crisis-riddled government. Not even the most inventive or ruthless scaremonger amongst my honourable friends would have had the audacity to allege that any government could possibly be so consistently incompetent, so hopelessly accident-prone, so foolishly inept. So is he is he more John Smith than Tony Blair, do you think, Keir Starmer? Well, the, the criticism of John Smith was particularly from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who uh, were, were very frustrated during the two years that he was leader, was that John Smith's approach seemed to be sort of one more heave, that, you know, having come so close in 1992, um, that the Labour Party just needed to do a little bit more, just remain sort of together and competent and, and it would get there. And that is a criticism that's been levelled at Keir Starmer, that he's somebody who perhaps hasn't sort of inspired the country, he hasn't sort of sealed the deal with the electorate. So there are, I think, some similarities there. And also his sort of winning card of being this kind of dull but reassuring, very sort of competent uh, leader um, against a, a government that seems to be sort of facing daily crises. Thanks for listening to our series on the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you to Nigel Fletcher too. I'll be back on the podcast on January the 9th. Until then, you've got Patrick McGuire. For me, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. 
I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.